This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Eero. Never think about Wi-Fi again when you can have brilliant, hyper-fast, super simple Wi-Fi system with Eero. And now the second generation Eero is tri-band and twice as fast as its predecessor. For free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada, visit Eero.com and at checkout select overnight shipping, then enter FOOL. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Wednesday, January 31st. I'm your host, Christine Hargis, and I'm joined via Skype by Fool.com healthcare writer, Todd Campbell. Todd, what is new and exciting? The sun is shining and I get to talk to you, so this is a good day. Beautiful. Love it. I hope that's not a terribly new phenomenon, that it's both sunny and a Wednesday. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, no, I, I think that, you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, we're we're getting closer and closer to mud season and then maybe some flowers bloom and New England gets, you know, nice and warm for us at some point. God, yeah. we can only hope. Looking forward <laughs> to it here as well. I mean, the, the New Year's flying by already. It's the last day of January. That blows my mind. So hopefully... I can't believe how quickly it's moving, Christine, right? It's just crazy. So anyway, last night, President Trump delivered his State of the Union address. So we're kicking off today's show with a discussion of the weather first, as usual. But after that, we're going to turn to a State of the Union for U.S. healthcare. So, Todd, catch us up. Where where do we stand? I was thinking about how to frame the discussion, how to get us kickstarted. And one of the things that jumped to mind in trying to figure out, okay, what's the state of the union when it comes to healthcare in 2018? It's maybe take a look through a consumer's lens at at the situation. And that made me think of a book by a guy named Phil Barton. And he wrote a book called Decoded, The Science Behind Why We Buy. And in that book, he said that we base our decisions on the perceived value that we get from purchasing something. And he defined that as the outcome that we get minus the cost to get that outcome. And uh, if you'll bear with me for a second, Christine, I've got a slightly imperfect analogy that maybe help us frame the conversation. Okay, let's hear it. All right. So last week, my very high mileage Volvo broke down. And I didn't want to get, I'm not going to buy a new car. I want to keep this car. So I was faced with three choices, right? I could go to the dealer and pay a premium price and get a premium part that theoretically would last me forever. Or I could go to my local independent shop and I could get a fair price for a quality product. Or I could go the cut rate route and you know just have somebody throw in a used part that could last a day or three years. Now I chose option number two because for my situation, that was my best perceived value or you know again, the outcome minus the cost associated with it. And I started thinking about, okay, well, how do you extrapolate that out to the current, you know, health situation of healthcare in, in 2018 in the United States? And I couldn't help but wonder if we're paying a dealership premium, uh, but not quite getting a dealership quality premium part for it. I mean, at least if you look at it relative to the rest of the world, that kind of seems like it's the case. The United States pays so much on healthcare costs, more than any other developed nation. Our spend on healthcare is 17.9% of our GDP, according to the CMS. But when you compare that to other countries, developed countries anyway, around the world, that's usually around 10% of GDP. So we're almost double relative to the size of our economy. But meanwhile, the quality, as you alluded to, Todd, that's a really important part of this because many people will be happy to pay an exorbitant amount for the best quality. 
quality, we don't really have the greatest quality of care. With an average lifespan of 80 years, the United States is ranked 43rd in the world on that metric. And on on many other measures as well, we don't quite stack up in terms of outcomes. By and far, we pay more per person for our health care than other developed nations. And when you look at the fact that, you know, you try and figure out, okay, well, how do you how do you rate the quality of, of healthcare? I mean, I, for me, I guess the, the 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 most important thing would be that average lifespan stat, right? <laughs> you know, uh, how long am I going to live in this country for the cost of of the healthcare that I'm getting? And the fact that you know there are 42 other countries that are ahead of us, you know, okay, you know that says something, I suppose. Um, you know, you can also look at infor- infant mortality statistics. And in the case of infant mortality, obviously, the U.S. does a very good job. Yet, despite doing a very good job, it still trails on that metric Canada, most of Scandinavia, most of Europe, and Japan. Um, So I think that you look at it and you say, okay, we're obviously spending a lot of money. We're throwing a lot of money at healthcare to the tune of, in 2016, $3.3 trillion, as you mentioned 17.9% of GDP. And there's no, and I I guess you could argue that you're not really getting what you would hope to get in 2018 for all of that money. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like there's any end in sight to that spending. Yeah, we're actually trending. CMS is saying, you know, we're looking at much higher uh, costs for our nation going forward. Yeah, absolutely. The trend definitely points to even higher costs. Over the last six years, premiums for employer-provided insurance, for example, have shot up 19%, but employee pay has only increased around 12%. And by the same token, healthcare cost inflation continues to outpace general inflation as well as wage growth. And I, I do, on one hand, understand that one component of that is a a slightly higher value, particularly when you think about innovative drugs that are more complex and can make the quality of life better for a lot of patients. But drugs are only about 10% of healthcare costs. The vast majority of the rest of it has nothing to do with the actual drugs themselves. It's stuff like spending on hospitals and doctor services and long-term care is a huge component. So I I do think that even though it's very much a widely talked about phenomenon and largely attributed to the cost of drugs, there are so many other elements to this. Yeah, more than half of all of healthcare spending, this $3.3 trillion plus that we're paying out, goes towards hospitalization, which I think is 32%. Another 20% goes to um, physician care. So, you know, yes, you're right that, you know, while the headlines may point to drugs as being the big cost problem with uh, healthcare in the United States in 2018, um, proportionally, it's, it's, it's not necessarily what's what's the big problem. I, I think that, you know, we look at this and we say, okay, well, if we have baby boomers turning 65 at a pace 10,000 per day, and we do have trends towards longer lifespans, then, you know, the great you're getting greater and greater demand into the system without a corresponding increase in supply. And that's putting pressure on on costs, it's pressuring these costs higher. I think CMS thinks that in 2018, healthcare spending is going to increase by nearly 6%. So an acceleration from last year. And it it really does kind of beg the question of what can be done to move the needle 
and, and finally get you know, the kind of quality that we would hope to get for the price that we're paying. Especially because a ton of the expenses are considered wasteful. There is one article in the Harvard Business Review that estimated that clinical waste, administrative complexity, excessive prices, and fraud and abuse cause an estimated $1 trillion in wasteful spending in the U.S. healthcare system. So all of this is to say that with higher costs and worse outcomes, this is a market that is ripe for major disruption. And yesterday, there was some news announced that some of the biggest companies in this country that are not healthcare companies are taking a look at how they could potentially disrupt. Yeah, enter stage left. Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan, three of the, the I call them premier biggest companies in the United States, huge employers with more than 1 million employees combined, have decided that they're gonna take all of their resources and deep pockets and try and tackle this problem uh, and come up with some new solutions with the goal of giving people better quality care at a lower price. And it's pretty unclear what exactly they're going to do. The only details that we really know is that they are going to form a company of sorts that is free from profit-making incentives and constraints, so a nonprofit. They're going to be trying to come up with technology solutions. And it's pretty clear that they'll be using their enormous base of employees. As you mentioned, it's around 1 million employees. Plus, when you add in their dependents, that's almost 2 million total people to try to figure out how they can lower their own costs, because these are companies that do that self-insure their own uh, employees. And so it's a huge cost item for these companies. So it's a win-win if they can figure out how to lower those costs. Yeah. And from a business standpoint, Christine, you and I were talking about this pre-show you know, you, this is a major expense for these companies. It's a drag on the economy. And, you know, if you look at the press release that was issued by these three companies and Warren Buffett, you know, he's always great with the folksy wisdom, right? <laughs> you know, he equated it to a hungry tapeworm. That's, that's you know, I mean, obviously healthcare expenses are, are diverting money from areas that would be otherwise more productive in the economy. Yeah, and this is something that Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett's investing partner, also agrees with. The two of them have said previously that the companies in the United States are not as competitive as companies in other countries because of the enormous cost burden of our healthcare system, even more so than taxes, which oftentimes you'll hear a lot of business executives harping on the tax structure when really a bigger needle mover would be to fix the U.S. healthcare system. A lot of um, a lot of attention has been placed on healthcare over the years, though, right, Christine? And Absolutely. It's it's this is a system that's pretty well embedded, and you're talking about having to change something that's been in place for decades, and it's it's not going to be easy, right? They even you know in the press release, you know, they all came out and said, "Listen, it's very important that we do this," but they all also said, you know. We don't know exactly how we're going to do it yet. Yeah. And I think that that's important because if you look at the stock market and the way healthcare stocks reacted this week to this news, you would think that they were going live with a brand new system today that was going to get all 300 million uh, plus Americans uh, the best healthcare in the world at the lowest cost right out of the gate. And that's just not the case. We will, of course, dig into what this means for the stocks in the healthcare industry and the market beyond just healthcare right after this quick break. 
This episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Eero. Eero is excited to introduce the second generation Eero and Eero Beacon. Eero home Wi-Fi systems started in early 2016. Since then, they've learned from hundreds of thousands of systems, making them smarter, faster, and more reliable. The new Eero second generation and Eero Beacon allow a customer to build a Wi-Fi system that's more perfectly tailored to their home than ever before. They offer more speed and range in the same high-quality, elegant design that people have come to expect. With the addition of a third 5 gigahertz radio, the second-generation Eero is now tri-band and twice as fast as its predecessor, which lets consumers do more simultaneously in every room of their home. And with the addition of a new thread radio, Eero can connect to low-power devices such as locks, doorbells, other sensors, and more. Expanding your coverage in any room is easy with Eero Beacon. Simply plug it into a wall and you're covered. You can add as many Eero beacons as you want. If there's an outlet, there's Wi-Fi. I got to try Eero out, and I was personally very impressed with the sleek app that simplifies the setup process. For free overnight shipping to the U.S. or Canada, visit Eero.com at checkout, select overnight shipping, and then enter FOOL to make it free. We thank Eero for their support. All right, Todd, as you mentioned, the announcement from Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan on Tuesday sent ripples throughout the stock market. Within the first two hours of the announcement, the market value of 10 large health insurance and pharmacy stocks dropped by a combined $30 billion. $30 billion. Wow. And, and on one hand, Amazon coming for you as a business or as an investor in a business, that shouldn't really be that surprising. But there are valid concerns for a handful of different categories of companies. I think so. I mean, you and I, we did a show previously um, talking about how Amazon was rumored to be kicking the tires on either creating its own pharmacy benefit manager or somehow getting involved in drug distribution. So it probably isn't a surprise uh, to, to see that a lot of that market cap that was lost this past week when, when the news broke on these companies teaming up to work together, uh, a lot of that market cap came at the expense of companies like McKesson and Amerisource Berg and Cardinal Health, who are big drug distributors. Um, the pharmacies took it on the chin. Walgreens, CVS, and Rite Aid all traded down on the news. The pharmacy benefit managers, Express Script, et cetera, uh, traded down on the news. I suppose those are the kind of companies that are most obvious uh, potential, potentially at risk for disruption. And it makes sense, right? The more hands, Christine, that touch a good, the more profit margin that needs to be built in to so to, to reward each one of those hands. So, you know, you could argue that all these intermediaries and these middlemen are increasing costs. Um, but, you know, the, the, the savings that may be associated with, with disrupting that, and again, we don't know what, what, um, what this trifecta of companies has planned, um, but may not be as large as some people think. I mean, you know, these are already huge companies that are deeply embedded. They have significant pricing power and negotiating power with drug makers. Um, and as we said earlier in the show, you know, drugs only represent about 10% of total healthcare spending in the U.S. anyways. So... I almost wonder whether or not um, that'll even be the the primary focus of this new entity. Yeah, I want to add on a couple of things to that. First of all, I, I don't see any sort of change in any of these companies' negotiating power. As you already mentioned, they're big, but they're not huge. They're nothing compared to, say, the number of people that United Healthcare covers. 
And I really don't think that these guys are ready to play hardball. You know, can you imagine if Amazon is you know going to negotiate even harder now, and they're going to squeeze drug makers and not offer services that are deemed too expensive? I just I, I don't see that going over well with their employees. And meanwhile, the other thing that I, I want to make sure we mention is that employer coalitions on healthcare already exist. In fact, Amazon and J.P. Morgan are part of the National Business Group on Health. And also a Warren Buffett company called BNSF Railway is part of the Health Transformation Alliance, which has over 40 companies. And their whole uh, ideal is to advocate for transparency in drug pricing. But they really haven't transformed much in their existence. So to me, I, I see this market reaction as a bit of an overreaction, at least initially, um, although I I. I do think that it's something to watch out for. I I also don't really see how you could lose so much in market cap at the drop of a hat based on a somewhat vague PR announcement. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, the the devil will be in the details on this. And I think that, you know, we look at this and we hear the word Amazon and we immediately think this, this company is going to disrupt, disrupt this market substantially. And hey, it might, right? We don't know. I mean, there's obviously no company that's better at supply chain management than uh, than Amazon. And theoretically, if they can figure out a way to get um, a product from a drug maker to uh, a patient uh, quicker, faster, more conveniently with uh, less friction costs, you know, yes, there will there will be savings there. Uh, to your point, though, you know, yeah, United Healthcare already has, you know tens of millions of, of members that they're, they're negotiating for. McKesson is massive. Marisource Bergen's massive. You know, Walgreens is massive. These companies already have significant negotiating power. So I, I wonder just how much of a savings they're going to get. And, you know, like you said, you're not going to be able to really successfully play hardball with a maker of a life-saving medication. And that's because patents protect these drugs and give them a de facto monopoly. You know, you, they don't have, they're not competing if they have a, a, a special molecule drug that is going small molecule drug that's going to, to, to solve a problem for a patient. They don't have competition until those patents expire. So they have, I guess you'd say, the pricing power necessary to be play hardball with um, the insurer, in this case, this, this new entity. Um, I, I think that, you know, what you may end up seeing is these three companies looking at drugs and saying, yeah, we can we can save some money there, but where we're really gonna have to try and innovate is using technology to improve the access to care to drive down those hospital and physician services charges. So I also want to make sure that we talk about potential winners here. And when you talk about avoiding hospital charges, I immediately start thinking about the walk-in clinics. So CVS stock lost, I believe it was around 4% yesterday in its market cap. I actually think that they could be a winner here if this coalition drives their employees to seeking out lower cost care, such as that that you would find in a walk-in clinic, rather than seeking out emergency room care. Other than that, Todd, do you see potential beneficiaries in the market? I absolutely do. I mean, I there there are three areas in particular that I think could be a, on the table as as a, an early on focus from these three companies. One kind of touches on what you were just talking about with the minute clinics and the in store clinics, but it takes it one step further, and that's telehealth. I think that the telehealth really is going to be 
the the big way that we can disrupt how people uh, how much people have to pay um, for healthcare services like primary care visits, specialist visits, and second opinions. And if I'm right, then these three companies could look toward a telehealth provider, for example, Teladoc, which we talked about on the show a few weeks back, and try to partner up with them to roll out telehealth more widely and make it, I guess you'd call it the default choice among consumers. So your first choice isn't to go to your primary care physician. Your first choice is to dial them up on the, on speed dial and say, okay, I think I have the flu. Can Can I... Can I get a prescription airdropped by a drone at my front door? You know, I think that you're right that the telehealth sector will definitely benefit from this. But when you're thinking about specific companies, I kind of think you could go either way. So for Teladoc, for example, they could certainly wind up partnering with this gigantic three-company conglomerate or maybe they would even be bought out by them. But you could also find the opposite where Amazon and JP Morgan and Berkshire create their own version and it, it blows up and knocks Teladoc out of the market. Uh, you know, I'm skeptical of that, Christine, only because you're talking about hundreds of thousands of providers and Teladoc already has those relationships in place. It's already got the system in place to be turnkey and start delivering you know, real results relatively quickly. Yes, theoretically, you might be able to build up a, from scratch a system like this, but it would just seem to make much more sense to use Teladoc, especially since Teladoc's already working with 300 of the large of the Fortune 1000 companies out there, um, you know it's even working with CVS so rather than CVS competing against it. CVS actually has a relationship with them. So I, I I agree with you that that there there is a risk there to that. It just would seem to me at this point, anyways, that the savvier, quicker to market solution would be to embrace to embrace a, pl- a player like Teladoc. Yeah, but if anybody's going to build it from scratch, it's going to be Amazon. But we won't dwell on that. That's speculation. So you mentioned that you have two more areas that you think might be ripe for disruption and actually benefit from this. Yeah, electronic records, Christine, would be a second one. Data, data, data. It's all about data. I mean, if you can leverage information and create predictive algorithms that can be used to treat patients before they get sick, to prevent hospitalizations, to prevent illness, to prevent chronic disease. Wow, the potential savings there could be massive. Now, you know, we've talked in the past on the show about, you know, how a lot of these legacy, you know, electronic record systems are siloed systems that don't play nicely with one another. Uh, there have been some pretty big barriers to entry as a result toward the concept of of getting unifying, centralizing all of that information in one place that can that can be analyzed. I mean, I don't know what the final solution will look like, but I imagine that they're looking at it and trying to figure out, wow, can we use something like blockchain to completely disrupt the health record market so that everything is is in one centralized and verified and approved location? Um, the potential there could be significant. Absolutely. Okay, so what's the last one, number three? And the last one would be wearables. You know, using using technology to provide real-time healthcare data that can then be analyzed to 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 track, you know, patient health and and intervention by doctors where necessary. And we're already starting to see evidence of this. You know, we we talked about the past um, Apple and some of the things Apple's doing with its watch and with its uh, healthcare app. You know, uh, um, CEO 
Tim Cook said that he was tracking his diet's impact on his blood uh, sugar levels. Theoretically, if you can build in a blood glucose monitor into a watch, um, wow, that, that would be great if you could team that up with an insulin pump or something like that. Uh, and then in December, Apple came out with uh, a heart study where they're going to use technology to be able to evaluate for um, abnormal rhythms in your heartbeat and possibly be able to determine if you're at risk of um, a heart attack or, or a stroke. Um, so these kind of things are potentially massively disruptive because, you know, as you can bet, chronic disease gobbling up a significant amount of that healthcare spending that we talked about at the start of the show and, you know, emergency treatment for heart disease, um, such as a heart attack or stroke, can cost up to a billion dollars a day, according to the Centers for Disease Control. Yep, this seems like a continuation of a trend. Uh, for example, when you look at Fitbit, one of their biggest areas for growth is potentially partnering with more and more insurance companies and large employers, particularly those that are self-insured, to provide the devices for their employees at a discounted rate or free because of the opportunity that they have to then lower healthcare costs by better chronic disease management and catching, say, anomalies in your heartbeat uh, early. So a lot of opportunity there for wearable. I completely agree. Yeah, and I don't think that just because Amazon's involved that there isn't room there for Apple to also be involved. Um, you could argue that, well, why would I be asking Siri about my health if I've got Alexa, right? But I, I think that, that, that there will be enough interoperability um, to support these all of these companies. And when it comes to wearables right now, I think, you know, Apple and, and some of these others, Fitbit, et cetera, they're, they're, they're the ones that could really start to move the needle more quickly than others. I, I don't know if you saw this news too this past week, but Apple actually announced in its healthcare app that you're going to be able to now store your patient healthcare data in it. And that it's it deals with Athena Health and Cerner, some of the largest providers of these record systems to the to hospitals and providers to integrate their data onto your app. That's that's where this market needs to go. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, the the integration between the tech sector and the healthcare sector, we're already seeing it in spades and it's clearly just only going to advance from here. Yeah, and I think that from an investment standpoint, you know, trying to figure out how that how this all shakes out just think about transparency, initiatives that would increase transparency throughout the healthcare system, uh, improve access, um, allow people to, to shop for products, um, access and cost and transparency. Those are, the, are the, probably the three things that you want to be focusing on. I think that's a great note to end on. As we wrap up today's show, I wanted to give a shout out to a new scholarship that The Motley Fool is offering. It's open to everyone age 18 and older that's attending college. All you need to do is write up an article based on a prompt and you can win up to $10,000. So please, listeners, encourage the students in your life to check out this opportunity at fool.com slash competition, where you can also find more details. Terms and conditions apply. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks that they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Todd Campbell, I'm Christine Hargis. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! Fool on!